You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Uh, if we've not met before, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to welcome you. We are in a series going through First and Second Kings, looking at Elijah and Elisha, and we're calling it uh, Grace in the Dark. And sort of the idea behind that phrase is that in very dark times, God is always present with his people. And so we've looked at very dark times culturally, when in Israel, the king and the queen uh, institutionalized worship of a foreign god, Baal. And it was a dark time where the people of God, the prophets of God, were persecuted, and yet God is present with his people, even when their culture, with the people around them, have fallen away from him. God is present with them. And then we've seen how God is present in individuals' lives when, uh, when times are tough. We've seen two occasions, one in Elijah and one in Elisha, where a widow's lost her son, And we saw one of these just a couple weeks ago. And and her son is raised from the dead. So this personal darkness of losing one that you're dependent on as a widow, losing and being left all alone, and, and God restores your loss. That is a tremendous reversal of suffering. It is grace in the midst of the dark. But today we encounter a situation that seems so small, so insignificant, so, dare we say, trivial, that it's a surprise that it's even in the Bible. It's it's hard to understand what even do with this text because it's not cultural darkness or the loss of your child or these these encounters where God has been present in suffering. It's a very small deal. So today we're going to talk about the God of little things and the God of big things in Second Kings chapter six. We've been reading. 25, 30, 45 verses a week. Today we're going to do seven, so it's going to be a little easier to get through. So here we go. Uh, 2 Kings 6, verses 1 through 7. God's word to us. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan And each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he he answered, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he said, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, alas, My master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and he took it. So what is going on here? What what is this? story about, and in the midst of all of these 
uh, you know, significant miracles affecting many people. What, what is going on here? Well, let's look at the story a little bit. The first thing we learned here is that the school of the prophets ministry is growing. Now, we've talked about the school of the prophets uh, on a number of different occasions. We've seen them under Elijah and now his predecessor or his, his, uh, his uh, protege is what I meant to say, not his predecessor, his protege, Elisha. We've seen the uh, sons of the prophets several times, and we've pointed out that they're like a training school. So the sons of the prophets are like these junior prophets. It's like a prophet seminary kind of is what they're being trained up. And so um, they're there under Elisha, who is their leader, and he is their mentor, and he happens, he travels around, but he happens to be with the school of the prophets in this event, and they sort of uh, present a problem and a solution to Elisha. Verse 1, they tell him, look, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small. Uh, so they need some more room, and they provide a solution as well. You know, they say, hey, let us all go down, each one of us, and chop down trees, Everybody grab a log and bring it back up here, and we can build sort of an extension um, on our living quarters here where we serve under you. And uh, so things are growing in the prophetic ministry, and this alone is kind of amazing. Elijah was like the lone prophet, he thought, and then he found out, yeah, there were a few other prophets that were hiding out in a cave and living off bread and water. And so now they've gone from a cave to this massive expansion. Howard Hendricks called this, this trajectory from cave to campus. And you can sort of, it sounds like a building campaign right there. You can see the brochure or the website. Get in. We're moving from cave to campus, uh, our building program. And they, they, they propose this building plan where they're not going to raise funds, but they're going to do it themselves. They're going to go out to the Jordan and they're going to fell some timber and then they're going to bring the logs back and they're going to ultimately construct an extension to their current facility. Now, they ask Elisha if this is okay, and he is their leader. Uh, and he says, uh, yes, you know, he answered, go, go do it. And they say to him, hey, will you come with us? So they issue this personal invitation to Elisha and he answers back to them, yes, I will go. So they go out there, and as in they're in the process of chopping down trees, uh, one guy is chopping down a tree, and you know as he swings back or something, the axe head flies off and lands in the Jordan River and sinks beyond reach, and he cries out in despair. I mean, this guy is despairing over this. Verse five: "Alas, my master, it was borrowed." This guy is anguishing over his loss of an iron axe head. And so Elisha tears off. He says, where is it? And he said, well, it was over there somewhere. And Elisha tears off a stick and throws the stick out. And when the stick hits the water, the axe head rises, the iron axe head rises to the top. And then this most unusual exchange, he, verse 7, says to him, take it up. Well, I don't know why he had to be instructed. I mean, if he's so shocked, I suppose if you see, well, a floating axe head, maybe he was just so stunned over this that he is told to pick it up and he picks it up. And that's it. That's the whole story in this little event. So how do we interpret a passage like this? 
How do we apply a passage like this? There might be a number of ways. Probably the most common approach to that, that's uh, common in many evangelical sort of circles would be to sort of moralize the passage. That may be the way you would naturally approach it. So we come to it, and when I say moralize, I'm saying that we look at the narrative and we sort of look to pull out a life lesson. I mean, what's the life lesson here? What am I supposed to learn? What am I, maybe even say, what am I supposed to do? What principle can I find in this text? A principle to live by. That's a very common approach. And so if we were to take that approach, we might come up with any number of things. We might say, well, it could be a passage that's warning about borrowing things. I mean, the Bible talks about that. It could be a passage that's rebuking the borrower. I mean, think about passages like Proverbs 22.7, borrower is servant to the lender. Or think about Romans 13, owe no one anything but to love them, including their acts, you know, don't just don't, don't owe anybody anything, just love them. Well, it could be that. It could be a message about being careful. I could hear that, you know, we need to be careful. That's probably a good family devotion message to all the kids. Everybody be careful with your stuff. This is what happens when you don't steward. What's steward? Steward is managing what God has entrusted to us, maybe from another person, but manage your stuff. Take care of your stuff. Money doesn't grow on trees. So take care of what you have. Steward it well. It's a gift from God. Could be a message on stewardship. This guy maybe didn't check, check his uh, axe head before he got to work. It could be a message about work. God values work. But work is cursed after the fall in Genesis 3, and it says that work produces thorns and thistles. And what does that look like? Well, it means sometimes when you're out working hard, your tool breaks. And what do you do in the difficulties of daily work? Cry out to God. That's what you do. So it could be a message about work, and what do you do when you're working, and you encounter difficulties. I could see someone looking at this and just coming up and making a wise proverb out of it. And saying, what this passage teaches us is, don't cut wood near a river. Doesn't that sound like a proverb? Don't cut wood near a river, for surely you'll lose your tools, or something like this. Don't, you know, uh, the wise man cuts wood inland. The fool cuts wood near a river. You know, you could see that being a proverb. And so maybe there's just a wise saying for us. In America, the American evangelical church loves growth. An expansion. So I could easily see a moralized application of this being growth. Starting with point one, dream big. The sons of the prophets are growing. Why? Because healthy ministry grows and healthy Christians grow and healthy churches grow. So dream big. And to fulfill the dream of expansion, Everybody's got to be involved. Everybody takes an axe and everybody chops a tree because it takes teamwork to make the dream work. Come on. Yeah. So it could be about that. There's team, and we work together. And it could be there's got to be a point about servant leadership. There always is in that kind of moralistic message. 
Elisha is a servant leader. He doesn't stay apart, but he is with the sons of the prophets chopping wood. Well, it doesn't really say he's chopping wood. He's just out there doing miracles, okay? But we got to have a point on servant leadership. And then there's always got to be a point that's a vague metaphor that nobody really understands, but you say, "Mm mm-hmm, that's good. Something like this. When the dream is lost, find a prophet with a stick. All right, that's good. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but that's good. Yeah, find a prophet with a stick and recover your lost axe head. So we love to talk about growth and teamwork and sort of just rework or retread what we heard at the sales seminar and put Jesus on it. That's what we do in America. That's how we like our gospel. Now, it's notable. That said all that tongue-in-cheek. The other ones were more serious about stewardship and Uh, you know, those kinds of things work. It's admirable to want to come to the Scripture with a heart to apply God's Word. But when we start with what does it say to me, what does it say about me, to me, we will miss the point every time. And here's why. The Bible is about God. I love you, but the Bible ain't about you. You are irrelevant to the Bible. The Bible existed before you were born, and after you and I are gone, the Bible will be doing great. The God does not orbit around us. We are not the center of the universe. Now, that's what our sin nature tells us. We're all born assuming that everything revolves around me. And so when I come to the scripture, the primary thing to learn is how does this help me? What does this say about me? So we live our lives subjectively. But the Bible is written objectively, and it is about God. And when we come to it asking what does the Bible say about God, God, that will be more relevant to us than anything else. There's nothing more relevant for your life. There's nothing more valuable to your life. There's nothing more uh, that will bear fruit in your life than to know God. You don't need life lessons and three tips from this narrative. You need to know God. I need to know what does this reveal to me about the God of the universe And I think it reveals at least, maybe more, but at least two things about God. It reveals to us that God is great, and in his greatness, really a mark of his greatness, is that he cares about the little things in the lives of his people. And the second point would be that God is so great that he cares about the big things in the lives of his people people. Now, first of all, God cares about the little things in the lives of his people. Why do I say that it's about God caring about small things? Because of the context. Here's the context of this event. What has happened just before it is that uh, we heard last week, Naaman, who is a Syrian commander, the commander of the Syrian army, Naaman has leprosy. So he's not an Israelite. He's a foreign guy. Naaman has leprosy. He comes to the prophet. Ultimately, he gets healed, goes down into the Jordan, same river, and he is healed. And it's about a world military leader uh, from another nation and God graciously reaching 
someone outside of the covenant family and bringing healing to him? How powerful is that? That this army leader or this commander is healed by Almighty God and he's not even, uh, he's an outsider. What's going to follow this story is going to be sort of a military engagement between the king of Syria and the king of Israel. So now we've got world leaders, international affairs, a military event. So this is what we have. We have a sort of a world leader, a military leader who is miraculously healed of leprosy. And then we have a story about sort of international affairs and actually a vision into um, uh, to the God of, uh, of all the armies of angels that are in the, uh, in the atmosphere, God's power, God the Lord of all. So we have this story about a great leader and about the nations and the spiritual world. And in the middle of it, we have God rescuing an axe head. It's by its contrast revealing to us that God cares about small things. To bring it to today's application, we could say something like this. In the midst of the context of our world with a grievous, heartbreaking war in Ukraine, in the midst of rampant inflation, with headlines of mass shootings, with political turmoil, wherever we turn, God cares about the small details of his people's lives. God cares about our lives. In, in the midst of finding unknown galaxies, do you see those pictures, the Webb telescope? And seeing galaxies that we didn't even know existed in the same week that we're getting pictures of new galaxies, and I look at that, and they give the miles and the time, and I can't even fathom. My mind just goes numb. I don't even know how to think about something that great, that kind of grandeur that God simply spoke into existence and manages daily those stars, those galaxies that the God over all of that, when we saw that this week, cared this week about the physical suffering that you experienced and the financial burden that you're carrying and the relational tension that you have with that person and that problem that keeps recurring at work and that pesky sin that you can't shake. God cares about all of that in the midst of the big stuff. God cares when your axe head sinks. Jesus gives a vision for this kind of grandeur of God. See, we always think about space. That's the big, you know, that kind of thing. God's great when we think about the scope of the universe. But Jesus said, here's how great God is as well. That not even a sparrow falls from a tree, but that God wills it. And then the next verse says, and even the hairs of your head are numbered. That shows the greatness of God, too, that God cares about things like numbers of hairs on our head here today and gone tomorrow. But God cares. Think about his providence in this as well. God orchestrates all of this. So we've read about Elisha. He's out traveling around. He's kind of a prophet visiting places and doing things. But he happens to be here with the son of, sons of the prophets at this time. So it makes it clear Elisha is there. And then I don't know if you read it, but it's almost a bit cumbersome 
the text, not, not cumbersome, that'd be the wrong word. This is the word of God. But it, is, it, it seems like there are some unnecessary details to us. So you read it and you say, well, the story could have been a few verses less. It could have just said the sons of the prophets were out chopping wood for an expansion project. And all of a sudden, one guy's axe head is lost in the river. And you'd go, okay, that's all we need. But, but we have this dialogue. So they go to Elisha. Let us go to the Jordan and get a log, etc. And he answers, go. And then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So there's this kind of dialogue which doesn't really seem that germane to the lost axe head until you think about, well, what if Elisha wasn't there that day? Because miracles aren't just flowing all over the place. At this time, God is doing miracles through designated prophets to reveal who he is. The recorded miracles that we have in this part of the history of God's people happen in conjunction with a prophet. And so if he had not been there, and if when they said, would you come with us, he had said no, then when the axe head went flying off into the river, there would have been no means for miraculous recovery because God was using Elisha. But God tells us, no, Elisha happened to be there when the building project started. And Elisha affirmed it and said, go for it. He could have said no. And then when they invited him to go, he said yes, because God looked ahead of, knew there was going to be a need and wanted to meet a need by miraculous intervention. God cares about little things and orchestrates things so that they all work together for our good and his glory. We have a book by Raymond Dillard that we're using and recommending. It's out there in the lobby by the coffee area if you want to pick one up. But this is what he says about this section of scripture. He says, we see that God brings good out of evil that he cares for his servants, that he rules over the laws of nature, that he is strong where we are weak, that his power accompanies his word, that he is concerned not only with the events of nations and important peoples, but also with the lesser details of the lives of little people. With this approach to the text, the focus shifts away from me and what I should or should not do. It goes instead to praise, adoration, thanks, and reverence toward God because of his power, his goodness, and his grace. God reveals what he is like in, his story, in this story, and his attributes are the same as he deals with us. It fills us with wonder and awe as we think about him. If we're going to think about God and how he acts in this context, I want to ask you, are you aware of God's involvement in the little things in your life? Do you see God as the God who cares for you in the little things? Or is he just the God who's concerned with wars and managing a vast universe, more vast than we know? When you review your day or your week or your year or your life, when you review, as part of your review, can you trace the hand of God's care for you every step of the way? How often have you cried out like this prophet, God, I need you? And how often has God answered in those moments, countless times? 
are, are we more aware of answered prayers in our lives or of unanswered prayers? We just forget about the faithfulness of God in so many ways, the way he answers this prayer. You know, if you were to ask me, what are the things you want God to do in your life right now? I could easily list some things I'm praying for that aren't happening right now. But if you said to me, what are the last five prayer requests God answered in your life? Hmm, that'd be harder to pull up. Because I'm far more aware of what God's not doing that I want him to do than I am of his faithfulness in so many details, so many little prayers that I just tossed up in a moment that he answers. God wants us to see that he is so great that he providentially manages the affairs of our lives, answering our prayers, caring for us. You know, how about this little bit about Elisha being there when they needed a miracle? You know, how many times in my life has there been a situation where I said, man, if that person hadn't been there or if that hadn't happened or if I hadn't gotten that call or if I hadn't seen that and knew about that or, right? Boy, if I hadn't met that guy, I wouldn't have my job right now. Or if I hadn't been there, I wouldn't have met my husband, my wife. Oftentimes we don't think of those little things he's doing all the day, and unless it's a, like, like a big thing. You know, you're driving along and a car pulls out in front of you, you almost have a wreck, and you say, whoo, wow, praise God. God, thank you for preserving me. But the reality is he was preserving us every moment up until that near accident. Every beat of our heart was sustained by him. It's just an axe head. It's a small thing to us. But isn't God faithful to care for the small things? When I was a kid in church, we used to sing this song. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. It was a simple song. It's not profound theology. But man, how true is that? How valuable are those words? Lord, help me recognize your hand in a thousand ways caring for the little things in my life. But God also cares about big needs. Where's the big need here? I mean, when we read this, I think we're all tempted to look from our cultural lens, our life, and say, what's the big deal? Just go down to Home Depot, buy another axe, equal value or better, and return it to the guy, and he'll be happy to have a new axe. <laughs> do, we, do we need God moving heaven and earth? I mean, there's a limited number of miracles. God can do whatever he wants. This is the 11th miracle of Elisha. Now, God's not a genie in a bottle where you get three guesses and then you're done. But if you're going to be using miracles, let's keep doing that raising people from the dead thing, Lord, and uh, providing food miraculously. And let's, let's do some more of those and not the axe head miracle. Well, that's because we don't live in their day and value an axe head like they would have valued. Most of the neighboring nations around Israel at this time had moved out of the Bronze Age and were into the Iron Age. They were beginning to use iron. Um, but Israel was a little behind technologically, scholars tell us, at this point. So an iron axe head would have been a rare commodity. It would have taken a lot of work to produce it. Uh, it would have taken a lot of time to produce it. And so it was incredibly valuable or expensive. 
One commentator said, just imagine borrowing your neighbor's table saw and you put it in the back of your truck and you're driving and it, you take a turn and it flies out and rolls into the river. That, that's what's happening here. Dillard, in his commentary, says, no, it's not that. This was so rare, this would be like borrowing someone's car and wrecking their car. Now, I think it's actually worse than that. I think this situation is more desperate than wrecking someone's car. And here's how I know, because I've wrecked someone else's car. <laughs> when we bought our first house in San Diego many years ago, um, we bought this house and then some guys from church said, hey, how can we help you? And we said, well, let's, let's repaint. And uh, so, man, I think we were all a lot, lot younger and I don't know, people didn't have stuff to do or what. But anyway, that Saturday, a bunch of kind gentlemen uh, came and helped me paint the interior of my house. And so we're just painting rooms and I'm looking around going, oh, we're going to run out of paint. So my wife and I only had one car at the time and she was out, so I didn't have a car. So I thought, okay, well, I can ask one of them to get it. Why don't I just ask to borrow somebody's car and I'll get it. So I asked to borrow somebody's car and one of the guys says, oh, you can take my car. He drove a Volkswagen Fox. It's a subcompact car. If you don't know that car, you haven't missed much. They made them in North America from 1987 to 1994. I looked that up. I don't just know that. Uh, it's not an impressive vehicle, but he loved it. He called it his Lexus Fox because he loved this little subcompact Volkswagen. I should, I should have said, okay, who has a car that they don't, you know, upsell the value of it by its nickname? Uh, but I didn't do that. So I took his car. I go to the paint store. I'm in the parking lot. Somebody comes around a corner. Bam, hits me in the front, crushes the whole front of the car. For quarter, front quarter panels is trash, the whole thing. So I'm thinking, oh, man. So I, just, I, didn't, I don't even know if we had cell phones then, but I wouldn't have called them. I wouldn't tell them in person. So I think, you know, uh, we exchanged uh, information, insurance information with the guy. Went back, told my friend, oh, the Lexus Fox ain't quite as foxy as it used to be. <laughs> uh, so we had a little problem. I got in a wreck. He was so gracious. Are you okay? Is everything's okay? Don't worry about it. You know why he said don't worry about it? Because I handed him the contact information of the other guy's insurance who ran into his car and wrecked it, called the insurance company, and it was paid for. This guy has no insurance. This guy has a debt. Why does he yell out, it was borrowed? Because now he owes someone for something, the value of a car, and he's a seminary student. He doesn't own a farm. He's not some, he's living in some little compound where they're building their own house. He's not some wealthy guy. He's no money, seminary student. And now he owes a debt that he likely cannot pay. And what happens when you can't pay your debt? Well, we found that out in chapter 4 when a lady's husband dies and then she says the creditors are coming and they're taking my kids into slavery, into indentured servitude because that's how you paid off a debt. So we got a guy that likely can't pay a debt, which is why he's saying, it was borrowed. We're just coming into the Iron Age, so this is very expensive. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so what am I going to do? I can't pay this. What's it going to cost me? My freedom? And so what we learn about God is that God intervenes for his people when they have a debt that they cannot pay and are facing the potential of conscription to slavery. God intervenes on big things like that. 
this small act of redemption surely points to a greater act of redemption in the Bible. Because what we learn of God here is he is the one who rescues, who intervenes in impossible situations to rescue people who have debt they cannot pay. The central storyline of the Bible is God acting in that very way. The, the culmination of all of the stories of the Bible point to God becoming man in Jesus Christ and coming to earth, living a perfect life that we could not pay, dying to pay our debt, dying in our place, bearing our sins, taking the judgment of God, which is due to each of us, being buried, raised on the third day, coming back to life, being ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns over everything. That is the message of the Bible, and this little individual story maps onto that greater story that is the whole story of the Bible. We not only look at texts of Scripture and ask, what does this teach me about God, but how does this connect to the greater story of the Bible, the redemption of God? That's how Jesus said you're supposed to interpret the Bible. In Luke 24, after his resurrection, he's walking with guys on the road to Emmaus. They don't, they don't recognize him in his resurrected state. And he's talking to them. And he basically takes them back to them, walks them through the Old Testament, and shows them how it all points to him. Wouldn't that have been a great lesson to be a part of? And so Jesus makes the point at his resurrection that all of the Old Testament points to me. Not in some kind of weird way. We don't say, well, the stick, that was wood, that means the cross. And no, sometimes in the Bible, sticks are sticks and rivers are rivers. But the character of God who rescues someone who's crying out, it is borrowed, I can't repay, that characteristic of God, the Redeemer, that we, we look and say, how do we see that? In the scripture, God intervening for us for a much greater crisis, not the accidental loss of an axe head, but the spiritual crisis that each of us face because we have willfully turned away from God. We have willfully gone our own way. We have willfully turned from him who says, worship me alone. And we have created for ourselves thousands of God's substitutes. The Bible calls them idols. They're the people and the places that we go when God is not enough. When we are looking for relief, when we are looking for joy, when we are looking for peace and purpose and meaning, it's a thousand things that we turn to instead of him. And because of that, we are under the judgment of God. Elisha surely points to the rescuer Jesus who does so much more than throw a stick in a water. But Jesus who, who miraculously intervenes as the God-man to pay an eternal debt that we never could pay. To free us from a lifetime, not a temporary indentured servitude, but a lifetime of slavery to sin and idolatry. He frees us from that. Not by throwing a stick, but by offering himself as the one who takes our judgment. And if God would meet our greatest need, can we not trust him to meet all other needs? This passage says God cares about little needs. Now, it turned out to be a big need when we understand its value and the desperate situation the guy's in. 
But we're taking that and saying, you know, that points forward to God meeting a greater need. In the New Testament, God does just the reverse. He says that God met your greatest need so you can know he will meet little needs in your life. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul said, you had this eternal debt that you, you can't even fathom. Not only can you not pay for it, you can't even imagine the debt you have before a holy God who requires absolute perfection, that we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves every second of every day perfectly. That's what God requires. And none of us even measure, even come close to that. And so we have this tremendous debt we're storing up for ourselves for the day of judgment. Everything he commands that we don't do, everything that he commands that we, that we, uh, that we send, that we, that we do when we're not supposed to do it, all of those are mounting up to the day of judgment. And, and the Bible says, Paul says there, if God took care of all of that debt, will he not come and rescue you when your axe head is at the bottom of the river. If he took care of all that, will he not take care of this? If he gave his only son to suffer indescribably to cover your sins, will he not give you all you need with that health concern, with the financial concern, with the work burden, with the anxieties and worries that you carry today? In other words, remember the cross Remember the empty tomb. Remember the ascended King Jesus who rules over all and know he'll take care of the axe head. He'll take care of it. If you're a Christian here today, a passage like this is to inspire our worship, to point us to Jesus and inspire our trust that God cares about the little things and that he's orchestrating providentially who needs to be where at the right moment where he will bring help our way? And if you're not a Christian here today, I urge you to turn to Jesus. The Bible throughout teaches that we are all sinful by nature, and we all know that. I mean, we know the world is broken. We know that we're broken. We all know that intuitively, that the things I want to do, I don't really do them like I want to. And the things I say I'm going to stop doing, I, I keep doing those things. And it's because of sin. And sin's not just breaking rules. Sin is primarily not worshiping the Lord God uh, first in every area of our life. It's not putting him first and our neighbor second. By nature, we put ourselves first. God graciously opens our eyes to help us see our need. And I pray that for you today, that you would see your need and that you would run to Jesus who welcomes you. The Bible says, Jesus says, I will never cast out anyone who comes to me. God welcomes you and wants to not only forgive you, but to free you from the slavery you're experiencing today and to begin to rework your whole vision of life, your purpose for living, to rework how you uh, to give you just a, a new, to make you a new creation, the Bible says, to make you part of his new creation. That's what God has for you. You can simply turn to him and trust, believe that he is the Savior who died and rose and rules today. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. 
To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.